0: Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga: Yoga Conversations for Smart, Compassionate Practice with Katherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. I started this podcast because I spend a lot of time thinking about yoga. My day in, day out, every moment relates back to my practice and eventually my teaching. But as those of you know who teach yoga. Your yoga classes are not always the best place to land information and concepts on your students. Workshops and trainings tend to be the better place to start to tinker with and grapple with some of the diversity of ideas that are interesting and of use to us on the yogic path. And I wanted to widen my audience. I wanted to connect with more of you, particularly in Canada, because we have such a rich and interesting yogic community here. And so to start to reveal that which we perhaps don't always notice in our practice, I thought I would start today by talking about some of the subtleties of a nuanced yoga practice that can really help you be more healthful and stable in your yoga posture practice. We will take a look at hands, feet, breath, and eyes. I will describe what it is that I see when I teach and give you the opportunity to try out a few tricks to help you Pay more attention when you're in your practice. This is perhaps not a podcast to practice along with while you are driving. That which is subtle, it's difficult to notice, naturally. And we are typically distracted by that which is gross, meaning visceral, things that take strong root in our bodies and minds. And that could be strong emotions. You know, when we're feeling particularly sad, we will be distracted by the sadness It could also be really strong physical uh, sensations, like the muscular effort of being in a posture or the release of a stretch reflex, the feeling of stretching when we're in another yoga posture. And sometimes we are distracted by the interplay between the two, the emotions and the physical sensations. And we often think of an advanced yogi as someone who is physically very skillful at completing postures beautifully. However, I've seen many yogis muscle their way into postures, perhaps lacking some of the the gentleness and the calm that we might look for in a quote-unquote advanced practice. So I see advanced yogis, in my opinion, in their 70s who will probably never handstand, but they have a strong awareness of their entire physical system from top to toe particularly their hands. When students are growing fatigued in a class, you can look at their arms reaching up in a lunge or a warrior one. And when they're tired, their fingers start to curl back in toward their palms. When they're hyper, their fingers spread and strain toward the ceiling. We're looking for something in between. An awareness uh, that's neither particularly hyper nor particularly relaxed and we want to draw this awareness into our hands because wrist strain and compression it's a common malady of frequent practice wrists and hands are often unintentionally injured during our practice because we pay less attention to them particularly because you know they're nuanced bits of our body the wrist is actually comprised of a bracelet of bones you might say and We are actually leaning into our hands, uh, compressing that bracelet of bones significantly more than we think. There's a difference between a passive and an active motion or hold in a yoga practice that really makes a difference here. The example that I like to use is pigeon pose. Think of yourself coming into pigeon pose. Your right knee is going to come up behind your right wrist. Your ankle is going to go in front of your left hip. You're going to walk your legs apart. Your back leg is extended back behind you. And then you're going to step yourself down into a forward fold that, you know, maybe stretches your inner thigh or the, the back of your hip. If you were to be in that posture and then take a look at where your right knee would be if your right leg was forward, it would probably be, you know, up somewhere near uh, the top of your ribcage. And your ankle might be rotated down just in front and above the top of the left side of your pelvis. If you were to stand up and then try to replicate that shape, that would be your active range of movement. You probably can't lift your knee anywhere close to your chest the way you can smush your knee to your chest in your passive range of movement. Same, same for your ankle. You can't rotate your femur in its socket close enough to get your ankle really snug towards your body. So passive is the lying down pigeon. Active range of movement is the standing up, trying to rotate your leg in using your own active muscular effort. Wrists and hands are typically uh, pressed toward the ground using body weight and gravity in a passive practice. So how do we reveal that? Extend your arms out in front of you. And then with your fingertips pointing forward, lift your fingertips toward the ceiling and press the heel of your hand forward. Spread your fingers, curl your fingertips in a little bit, and then pull back the hollow of your palm. This is some of the engagement that we might find in plank posture and a little bit in downward facing dog with a more dramatic wrist flexion. I'm doing this as I'm chatting to you and my wrists are already starting to get tired. That shows us how inactive our wrists and hands are in all of those planks and downward dogs. We're leaning into our hands rather than actually standing on our hands. And when we lean in and we do not strengthen the tissue, we risk compression and we risk strain. So when you're coming into postures that require your hands to be on the ground, actively work with your hands on the ground. Spread your fingers, yes, but curl your fingertips in a little bit, even if it means that some of your other knuckles lift a tad. Press down around the perimeter of your palm and hollow the center of your palm. Feel as if you were lifting your forearm up off the base of your wrist, and this should help you build wrist and hand strength and reduced wrist compression. From top, we go to toe. Feet. Often relax into shapes as well, and it impacts foot strength and ankle stability. And foot strength is, it's an incredible gift. My feet, somewhat unfortunately, got about half size larger when I started practicing yoga. And so now I'm destined to only wear Birkenstocks. But our feet are typically trapped within shoes. And when they're trapped within socks and shoes and they do not move in that strong, active way on a day to day basis, the musculature grows weak. And that affects our balance and it actually affects our nervous system as well. And so when we come to our yoga practice, our toes and our feet, they're weak, they're used to being supported. We come into postures that have really strong stretch sensations and really strong muscular contraction sensations, we get distracted by those dominant sensations and we forget all about our feet. I can look at a number of postures in someone and relatively assess if it's foot or ankle range of movement impacting them in their other joints. So being aware of what you're doing in your feet and actively strengthening and caring for your feet will actually help you develop a range of movement throughout the rest of your body. It'll also gift you with balance for the rest of your life. And that's a real blessing because particularly if we are more chronologically experienced yogis, we are at risk of falls later in life. And falls are incredibly detrimental to seniors. They are correlated with a number of other negative impacts, including memory loss, stroke, uh, and moving out of one's own home. So we want to practice yoga that reminds us that we're in this for the long haul, right? This is a practice for longevity. This is not just a practice for our 20s and 30s while we can do fancy things. This is a practice that's going to help us age gracefully and skillfully and, and keep us you know, resilient and independent to the best of our ability. So to test out your foot strength, This is my favorite activity to integrate into a class where people are having perhaps just too easy a day. So you want to stand with your feet about hip width apart. Put your hands on your hips because your fingers are going to get itchy while you do this. And then step your right foot forward. Press your right big toe down and lift and spread your other four toes as much as you can. Press your right big toe down, lift and spread your other four toes. And if you've noticed that your fingers are clenching your hips and your left foot is also clenching the ground, then you're probably doing this properly. Now switch around, press down your four toes, spread them into the ground and lift your big toe as much as possible. Notice that you are holding your breath and try to breathe as you do this at the same time. So start to switch back and forth. Big toe down, four toes lift and spread. Four toes press down, big toe lifts. And if you're finding this really easy and thinking that you are very foot gifted, then switch to three and two. Your two biggest toes down and spreading, three small toes lifting. This activity quickly reveals the interplay of the nervous system and our musculature. Someone who has learned to write or drive with their feet, they're not naturally gifted in that way. They move that way because they ask their musculature to move that way. You can do the same thing. This activity is a really good one. And even though I know it's surprising to feel a lactic acid buildup, that's the, the buildup of acid with long muscular musculature contractions. And you may think to yourself, oh, there's no way I'm going to integrate this into my life in any way to significantly change my musculature. The truth is you can If you do it a couple of times a week, if you do it around your yoga classes, and also importantly, you're also working with your nervous system and your nervous system adapts quite quickly to input, which means that you're helping yourself build an awareness within your feet, even if you're doing this infrequently. When you come onto your yoga mat, engage your feet. My favorite way to do this when I'm teaching is to tell people to lift and spread their toes. They find it easier to lift and spread their toes, thus engaging most of their foot than any other engagement. This also really helps in postures uh, that require the back of the body to support weight. Um, Because as we'll talk about in future podcasts, people tend to be very front body strong and back body weak but like to stretch their back body. So what does that mean? Think of a shape like bridge pose. If you have taught before, you will know that people's knees tend to knock open and their feet tend to get relaxed when they do this posture. And that's because their back body, the backs of their legs are not always used to supporting weight in this way. So to help them train themselves to support load into the backs of their legs, Lift and spread your toes, press down through the rest of your foot. It will help them draw their knees a little forward and elevate their thigh bones more effectively. Once you start to master that in your teaching cues or in your practice cues, I also like encouraging people to press down their big toe and their baby toe and to lift their middle three toes. This helps activate uh, an arch that exists in between the two big toes and strengthen your foot in a different direction. It's particularly useful to integrate to static uh, postures that require both feet on the ground in a parallel way. So, things like goddess pose, chair pose, bear pose, which is kind of like a hybrid of the two, you would step your feet to about the width of your mat and keep them relatively parallel. You then press down underneath your big toe and baby toe, lifting the middle three as you sit your hips low, about in line with your knees, and then you reach your chest forward, look a little bit forward and reach your arms forward. You'll find out why it's called bear pose quite quickly. We'll get into more detail about breath in a future episode, but breathing well is another tremendous gift. Just a heads up that I say tremendous gift and really the best thing about yoga frequently. It's starting to be a very crammed list. Regardless, many of my private students are disappointed when they find out that their prescription homework is breathing. I think many of us in the yogic and Ayurvedic community, we have to get real with ourselves sometimes that We are likely not one bum stretch or one special kind of herbal oil away from having all our problems solved. Our minds and our bodies get very good at what they do on a day in, day out basis. And depending on your constitution, your physical makeup, your mental makeup, some of us are able to change quite quickly. And some of us, you know, we're like a ship slow to change course. It takes us a little while. But change happens when we do little things consistently over a long period of time, mentally and physically. Breathing well reduces your anxiety. It helps you acclimatize to physical activity So you can move through your yoga practice, your running, your day-to-day, your hustle with less reactivity. There's also now research that shows that the ability to expand and contract uh, your lungs and all the musculature that surrounds them well impacts your pelvic floor. And as anyone who has had a baby knows, a resilient pelvic floor is a very desirable thing to have. So breathing well is something we want to do. When I look at my average drop-in yoga class, where I have a variety of people, I frequently see people who breathe in a shallow way and their chest, think of their heart, it sort of pops up and down. It reminds me a little bit of like a chipmunk or a bird or a very hyper animal breathing. You can see their chest lifting up and down. Someone who has a larger breath capacity will generally keep the front of their chest quite still and the breath moves lower in their trunk through the front of their body and also into the back of their body. The other nice thing about skillful breathing is that it directs the subtle energy, our life force, prana, down into us. We often talk about generating prana, generating this life force through our yoga practice, but we want to do so skillfully. It's actually quite easy to generate prana. You could just eat an apple or jump up and down for a little bit, and that's going to generate you some zesty prana. But we want to evenly distribute this this energy down into ourselves. Think of it. It's equanimous. It's equal. It's calm. That's what we're looking for rather than whirling upward. So when we breathe down, our attention moves down. The energy moves downward. And then one of my teachers always says, you want to pack the prana down. So if you are not driving, close your eyes for a moment. Take a very long breath in. Gently let it go. (sighs) And then start to lengthen your breath cycle. As you start to lengthen your breath cycle, particularly your inhalations, you will become familiar with some feeling of tension in the belly. Relax that to the best of your ability. Fill your lungs all the way to fullness. And then slowly exhale, drawing your belly and your sides up and in. And then breathe in all the way to fullness. And then slowly exhale, draw your belly and your sides up and in. One of the challenges that people find with this practice, especially when we call it Dirga Pranayam, when it's the long breath or the three-part breath, is because we encourage them as teachers to breathe into their, their collarbone, their ribs, and their belly, and that's the size of an inhalation, we then say, you know, exhale, belly, ribs, collarbone, settle. You might feel pressure as a student to keep your belly puffed out for a large inhalation. But your diaphragm, the sort of umbrella, asymmetrical umbrella-shaped muscle that helps expand and contract the lungs, it's tethered to some of your lower ribs. And when they broaden at the end of an inhalation, your diaphragm is pulled flat. And when your diaphragm is pulled flat, your ribs are expanded, but your belly is going to naturally come back in a little bit. So, our minds are struggling with this musculature trying to draw the belly in, but us thinking, no, 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 I've got to be a good yogi with a big inhalation. My belly has to stay puffed out. Notice that tension that creams in. Yes, breathe down to your belly. And also be okay with your belly gently drawing back in a little bit naturally as your ribs and your back continue to expand. So let's try it again. Take a very long breath in. Gently sigh it out. And then start again. Breathe in all the way to fullness. Notice your belly expand. And then keep it relaxed even though it's expanded. And then slowly exhale, drawing belly to spine and your ribs to come in and settle. When you can bring your attention to this throughout your practice, it will help refine your movement and it will also help you move more skillfully from your center, meaning that you'll rely less on your arms and your legs to manipulate your center, but more on that in a future episode. The last thing I wanted to cover has to do with the eyes. And until I studied Ayurveda, I didn't really understand the importance of a gentle drishti or gaze. And we often think of drishti as, you know, where we are looking when we are doing a posture. And we understand that where we look impacts the position of our head and our neck, but we don't always think of it as a, as a mental practice. Yogis have this habit of getting very, very fiery. I would say even borderline vicious in their eyes when they're having a strong, hot practice. I think of this particularly in warrior two, the lunging shape where your arms are extended. Because you rotate your gaze so purposely over that front arm, people just tend to look like I'm going to get this pose. I got it. We need to soften that. It's an unnecessary expenditure of energy, and we're trying to draw attention to unnecessary expenditures of energy in our yoga practice. But it also brings more heat than we need. Right. And we want to we want to get warm, but we also don't want to burn ourselves down. We also tend to see it in chair pose or abdominal work. Basically, anywhere where people experience a lot of heat or frustration, the eyes can get quite angry. You also tend to see it in finishing twists. I'm thinking of Andrasana at the moment, the seated um, twisting pose. And it reminds me of my ski instructor because he would always say, You know, look where you're going and you'll go in that direction. Unfortunately, I was not a very skillful skier and I probably looked at the trees a little too often because that's where I ended up. But with yoga, much more skillful, fewer trees in the studio. But people tend to finish these twists and you're craning your eyes behind you and you don't realize that it's actually kinking up your head, neck and shoulders and your face as well. Close your eyes, if it's safe to do so, to bring your awareness back in and refine your attention to your alignment uh, without looking over your shoulder. This is particularly important because our eyes consume information constantly. Our yoga practice should be about cultivating an inner awareness, and I appreciate that you might not always see information uh, that you're seeing in a yoga class as particularly detrimental, right? If you're practicing in the back corner of a studio room and you're turning over your shoulder and looking at a wall, that might not seem particularly detrimental. But what if you're in another place in the room? You see people around you, you see what they're wearing, you see how they're doing their postures. You might see something that reminds you of somewhere else you need to be and someone else you need to talk to. And we have plenty of those reminders in our life right now. We have a little computer that follows us around and invites us at every opportunity to pay less attention to our present moment. I would encourage you in your yoga practice, so long as it feels safe for you to do so, to consciously close your eyes. Those of you who have studied yoga philosophy know that this is often referred to as pratyahara or sensory withdrawal. It's important that we keep our senses refined because we want to move through life with clarity. And it's hard to stay clear if we're clogging it up with lots of information. So, closing our eyes is a way that we can digest information that we've already consumed. That's why it's so important to take shavasana or seated meditation at the end of our practice. Our practice requires that we take in information, that we move through sensation. To be at the end of it and to be quiet with ourselves and to take in less is to process that information. It just leads to good digestion. And as we'll address in future episodes on Ayurveda, we are all about good digestion. That's it for this time on Intelligent Edge Yoga. If you're interested in some of what I talked about regarding passive and active ranges of movement in your practice, Yoga International just published my piece on functional movement. The foot exercise I described in this episode is there so you can easily access it. I've linked to that article from the show notes you can find on the website, www.intelligentedge.yoga. If you enjoyed listening, consider leaving an iTunes review. They really help. And remember that Ayurveda encourages us to respond to nature. So stay cozy and nourished in this dry, cold season. Namaste for now, yogis.